0: Hi, I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. We are coming to you today from many locations. Uh, As is usual, because it's a Thursday, I'm here in New York City at our studios, uh, live at the Comedy Cellar. And with me, as usual, um, is the uh, hilarious um, Ryan Goodman of Just Security and NYU Law School. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. And... Um, in various locations. We've got David Sanger. Where are you, David Sanger, of the New York Times?
1: Somewhere in an undisclosed location outside of Washington, D.C., but not too far outside.
0: There you go. For those of you who are hunting for David Sanger, that should narrow things down just a bit. Uh, And also, we have Sharon Weinberger of Yahoo News. Sharon, are you in the nation's capital?
2: I am. I am very close in an undisclosed location, not far from
0: the White House. Mm, Not far from the White House. Of course, the president's not in the White House. The president is in Osaka, um, Japan, with his brains trust that he's brought to the G20 meeting. I don't know if any of you have seen the picture of the team that he's fielded (laughs) there, but it's really special. Um, And uh, last, but certainly not least, we have also, I believe, in Washington, D.C., back from travels across Europe. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Are you back, Ed, or are you still abroad?
3: I, I am back and I, I am in a um, I'm in a disclosed location, which <laughs> is my home in Washington, DC.
0: Oh, stately Loose Manor, which is of course part of the whole feel, the vibe uh, of <laughs> of deep state deep state radio. People write in about it, they imagine it. Um, but but trust me, it's almost impossible to imagine. Um, so uh so suffice it to say the word lair was invented for this uh so let's let's just begin. We'll go back to the news. It seems, I don't know, an, an eternity ago, but it was a couple of days ago, really, uh that we thought, mm, well, perhaps we're gonna go to war with Iran, um, uh, and you know, maybe the Iranians. Uh, 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 you know, were uh, posing an immediate threat to us, and then we were going to blow up some radar installations, and then maybe we weren't going to blow up the radar installations, and then maybe we were going to cyber attack them, and so on and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, as soon as it looked like we s- were not going to actually blow things up and have explosions that people could see on video. People started getting less interested, which is, of course, one of the strengths of cyber. Sharon, you and your team started to break that story about the cyber attack. You want to talk about what happened as far as you guys know?
2: Yeah, so basically the, the day of the drone shoot down, of course, there were the initial reports that the response was going to be some sort of conventional attack that you know, Trump and his narrative stopped, you know, just a little bit before because the reports were that 150 Iranians would die. But of course what, what was strongly suspected and which we confirmed and reported out was that in fact although there was no conventional strike right afterwards, there was um cyberCom launched an attack uh, targeting basically Iranian spies who have been targeting ships, naval traffic. Um, and that is, on one hand, not surprising. Uh, you would expect Cybercom to launch such an attack. But it is interesting that that was the route they went rather than a conventional attack.
0: Um, so, David, this is, this is your beat. You like nothing more than writing about cyber attacks on Iran uh, uh, and have done so since the days of Stuxnet. Um, what's your take on where things currently stand?
1: First of all, I think Sharon and her team at Yahoo did a great job uh, breaking the story out, Uh, and um, uh, it's a really fascinating example. Um, One of the things that we're still trying to figure out is whether the cyber attack that ultimately they did against some of these intelligence units and so forth was actually intended to be part or prelude of the actual physical missile or other kinetic attack. And when the president canceled the one, he just didn't cancel the other, so that he could feel as if he was doing something. Um, I think it illustrated uh, two or three things that we're likely to see more of in the Iran um, confrontation, because this is we're we're much closer to the beginning of this, I, I fear, than at the end, because within days we're expecting that the Iranians will say that they've crossed the limit that was set in the 2015 agreement about how much um, uh, nuclear fuel they could stockpile. And that's going to start calls again for taking some kind of military action, even though that stockpile, at least at these levels, would not be enough to make even a single bomb. Um, I think the issue that's going to come up is whether a president who is clearly hesitant about drawing blood, and I think i he's to be commended for pulling back uh, from this attack since it was only an attack on an unmanned system, whether he'll turn increasingly to cyber. And my guess is that if he does that, he's going to be a little bit disappointed that the effects of cyber attacks are probably not quite as long lasting as he would like to go see. Um, The other thing that's developed in the 10 years since Stuxnet to this moment is that when Stuxnet happened, The Iranians had no cyber capability of their own, and they've spent the past decade building a considerable one. They're not as good as the Russians and the Chinese, but uh, they're better than the North Koreans. And uh, they have shown that they are capable of uh, taking out uh, a casino in Las Vegas. They've shown that they're capable of attacking and slowing down banks in New York. And um, no doubt they've got a a counter plan out here as well. I think one of the big questions for this administration is the and then what question? What happens after they use cyber in response to the next Iranian provocation?
0: I I suspect that the um, Sanger compound in Vermont is going (laughs) to be directly in the crosshairs. Um, Or are you so far off
1: the grid? The great thing about about Vermont is there's no internet signal in the best of times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, So, Ryan, you're an expert in the legal issues associated with the the use of force. Um, Trump in the midst of all of this said he didn't need any congressional authority to go ahead and do what he was doing. But it does seem that as gray as the gray areas are around the traditional use of force, to some degree they're even grayer around the cyber use of force. Maybe you want to talk about that
4: a little. Sure. Um, So, you know, one of the big questions as a legal matter for the Thursday uh, cyber operation that was conducted against Iran is whether or not it was tantamount to the use of force. Um, And so far we have the descriptions from both Yahoo News and the New York Times, which suggests that the United States was actually taking out um, some of the computers within the Iranian uh, military systems. And what does that mean to take it out? So if it actually meant that there was physical damage done, then lawyers would say that's actually the equivalent of a use of force. You're just doing it with a cyber means that you otherwise could have done with a kinetic means. And that would mean that you are actually getting right back into the question of, like, U.N. charter. Can you use force in another state if it's not necessary, if it's disproportionate? It you know dovetails back to the other question of, was the shoot down by Iran legal or illegal? Because only then could you determine whether or not the U.S. cyber operation was legal. And then here's another uh, kind of a question, I think maybe just to throw it to Sharon and David about this. The reporting is, uh, there's a discrepancy as far as I can tell in the reporting as to, What was the United States responding to when it conducted the cyber operation? So the Yahoo News report says, and Sharon just mentioned it, that it was a cyber operation by the United States against Iran because Iran was interfering with U.S. naval traffic, like U.S. Navy ships. That's one reason. (laughs) Second reason, New York Times says, is uh, it was a response by the United States against Iran for the two oil tankers and the mining of the two oil tankers and then the third that's also in the New York Times report is the shoot down of the U.S. drone. Those are three independent reasons as to why the United States conducted the cyber attack against Iran. And two of those actually wouldn't work legally. So if it's a use of force, you can't use force just because they're like tracking our Navy. If it's a use of force by the United States, you can't use it because uh, Iran tried to mine the commercial tankers of other states um, if it's a use of force, it could be legally justified if it was in response to the the shootdown of the U.S. drone. So it's just a you know an open question about the reporting as to what exactly the cyber operation was developed to respond to. Before I go to Sharon and David, and then I'll go to Ed, but Ed, I'm sure you'll be a little patient on this
0: one issue. Um, Ryan, if it was in response to a shootdown that was over Iranian territory as opposed to international waters, would that change matters?
4: It does. Um, so. That's why it's also, I think, an open question as to whether or not Iran was acting unlawfully in shooting down the drone. So if the drone was over U- Iranian uh, airspace, then they, many would say that they had the legal authority to do so. Iran submitted a letter to the UN uh, this week that spells out their position that it was over Iranian It had crossed over Iranian airspace. They were acting under um, the UN charter in self-defense to shoot down the drone. And uh, as far as I understand it, the United States has not submitted um, a a letter to the UN as they ordinarily would. That's one piece of it. Second is, uh, we'll have a piece about this tomorrow morning in Just Security, but there's another element that people haven't even focused on. If the drone was, let's say, in quote-unquote international airspace, it has to transit that airspace expeditiously. And if indeed, if if in fact it wasn't doing that and was surveying and spying on Iran, then it violated the rules of being able to peacefully transit uh, through that airspace. That opens up another avenue that Iran could say, look, uh, in the alternative, you only kept yourself to international airspace, quote-unquote, but you were spying on us. And there was another uh, ves- vessel that, the, uh, that President Trump admitted was up there around the same time that is a surveillance uh, plane. So,
0: yeah. So, but, And I want to go to you, Sharon, in, in, in a second on this, but... Um For those of you who listen in to our Thursday broadcast, where we have Ryan on here regularly, you know of him, of course, as a fixture at the Comedy Cellar, (laughs) um, uh, and from Just Security and and NYU Law School. But you also were a counsel at the DOD, right? I mean, this was something you spent some time doing at the Pentagon.
4: Exactly. Uh, Cyber uh, operations and use of force questions were one of the parts of my portfolio.
0: Okay, so Sharon,
4: given the issues that... um,
0: Ryan raised. Where do you think we we shake out on this?
2: Well, I think Ryan raised what is a great, great question, which is, where was the drone? Um, so, it, you know, from the time, you know, the U.S. position has been that it didn't violate a run-in airspace, but it hasn't, you know, the, the Pentagon afterwards, you know, held this sort of very bizarre 90-second non-press conference, you know, just reading a statement. Um, you know, we haven't had White House briefings. Uh, we haven't had Pentagon briefings. So there hasn't been a very good opportunity for the press to ask these questions and to push a little further on it. So So that is, I think, a great question that has to be reported out. Um, But it certainly does speak volumes that um, the U.S. hasn't been very specific on it.
0: Um, David, do you have any comment on Ryan's comments? Sure.
1: So um, uh, Ryan's perfectly described uh, the law and the time when he was at uh, DOD. There are two things that have happened to U.S. Cyber Command since last August. Uh, A presidential order, uh, I think it's called... um, National Security Presidential Memorandum 13, which we haven't read, it's still classified, that has been described by John Bolton and others as devolving down to cyber command uh, authorities that previously the president held for himself. And then um, legislation that went into the National Defense Authorization Act last year, which allows much greater latitude for um, the for the Pentagon, for Cyber Command, to conduct what they call traditional military activities in short of war uh, kind of events, preparing the battlefield, so forth and so on. Um, It is entirely possible that they interpreted action against intelligence agencies and so forth that they believed to be uh, responsible for the uh, attacks on those ships as part of that traditional military activity To deter further attacks on the ships. And I'm no legal expert, but just talking to people in Cyber Command, they've taken a much more aggressive view of interpreting these rules than was taken by, say, uh, the Obama administration. Um, And you see this in the public comments that both John Bolton has made and, at various moments, uh, General Paul Nakasone, the head of the NSA and Cyber Command. So it's very possible that uh, they looked at the situation and said, this is a moment for some traditional military activity.
0: So, um, Ed, uh, I don't want you to feel left out here. In the, uh, An element of this entire context, uh, of course, is diplomacy or lack of diplomacy. Uh, the United States actually kicked off all of this diplomacy by pulling out of the JCPOA, Um, uh, which, of course, had one effect. Uh, The stance of the president of the United States when pulling back was, we just want to talk to the Iranians, and if they promise not to have nuclear weapons, then we're all cool, and they can go and be a rich country, which is his big payoff to everything. Uh, Of course, this neglects the fact that, um, uh, A, uh, Iran has been causing trouble since the Iranian Revolution in 1979 without being a nuclear power, so they don't actually require being a nuclear power to cause trouble. Uh, and B, uh, the, the first thing we did when we said we wanted to talk to them was uh, uh, we launched a bunch of sanctions, including sanctions on the foreign minister, which can't put him in a particularly good mood. Um, uh, and then, you know, at the same time, uh, little Jared Kushner, uh, who we've also learned today is conducting foreign policy without benefit of talking to the State Department, for some recent uh, transcripts uh, we've seen of uh, uh, from Rex Tillerson. But but little Jared Kushner was hosting. I don't a- think that was a
1: shock, David.
0: No, 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 <laughs> it, it, it wasn't. But you know, Jared was hosting a peace conference in uh, the Middle East about ostensibly about Israeli-Palestinian yeah. peace. Uh, Of course, there were no Palestinians there. There were actually no government ministers there. Jared said this was because uh, he finds the establishment is resistant to his big ideas. But, um, you know, the real undercurrent was, and the big headline was, more rapprochement between the Gulf countries and the Israelis, who share what? They share a desire to put pressure on Iran. So it looks like, you know, the, 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 the diplomatic picture here is a bit of a muddle, uh, and I, oh, and I, and before you comment on it, there was also the response of uh, the, the the Iranian leadership to all of this, who they characterized the president of the United States as mentally retarded, um, and so so that he couldn't have liked that very much. Um, but uh, I'm just wondering, Ed, you know, uh, you know, where where do you think U.S. diplomacy goes from here?
3: Um, Well, that's a good question. And by the way, I didn't feel left out. I This has been an excellent briefing, so I've been learning quite a lot. Look, I I mean, I wouldn't use the term diplomacy, frankly. I think that's too grand a term to describe what's what's going on. Um, Just to make a sort of brief parochial point about the meeting in Bahrain and and Jared Kushner's show there, um, it's disappointing to me, but unsurprising to see that perhaps his biggest cheerleader and validator um from outside the region is tony blair who is who is who is at that event um, uh so di- diplomacy, i don't think you know it, diplomacy means joined up government it means state department talking to white House and Pentagon it means interagency processes it means a coherent view of how you match uh, means with ends so and that that just doesn't apply in this situation. What you have is uh, as you mentioned trampling out of this um, the JCPOA a year, a bit more than a year ago, um, and and you have um, Iran finally saying, look, we'll give this sixty days. Those sixty days end on July the seventh, um, after which we will, in moderate ways, breach the the um, JCPOA agreement, um, and um, Europe coming under increasing pressure to, you know, um, abandon the JCPOA from the Trump administration, and we've been in the last few weeks understandably, particularly with um, the the strike that, that Trump called off last week, seeing Trump oddly as the, the last line of resistance against a completely needless war um, or, or at least conflict that will underline every possible reason in, in, in Iranian eyes why Iran should go nuclear. Um, uh, because it worked for Kim Jong Un and not going nuclear didn't work for Gaddafi, um, and uh, and that you know that's next week or, or rather the beginning of the week afterwards. So we're we're very very close to a situation where Trump, you know, as that last line of defence in an administration of uberhawks. Um, he is, I think, going to be outplayed by the events that he's unleashed and by the advisers um, uh, such as John Bolton and um, Pompeo that he has appointed. Um, so I, I'm, I'm I'm becoming increasingly pessimistic about whether this situation can be resolved diplomatically, as you put it, or otherwise um, uh, with, without some kind of a military conflict happening. And I, I think that that prospect is becoming alarmingly likely.
0: Well, I want to come back to you on that. I, I just got back from England, and I look forward to speaking to you about your next prime minister, uh, of which you should be enormously um, proud, uh, although literally not a single human being I met in the UK was. Um, but before I get back to you on that, let's just go around and, and take a little bit of a quick snapshot of what we think may happen next, following up on Ed's point. And let me start with you, Sharon.
2: Oh, I'm a horrible prognosticator. I mean, w- one thing that I don't think happens out of all this is, is a better deal or a good deal or some sort of negotiation. You know, like a lot of people, like, it's a great thing that, you know, even just saying that a drone wasn't worth 150 lives. I mean, yes, that was a good thing, but it sort of ignores the fact, that, how did we get to this crisis or tension uh, anyway, which was, you know... A, Trump's administration sort of increasing pressure on Iran pulling out of the JCPOA. You know, it's worth noting for the few of us who probably watched the entire Democratic debate that when asked about the JCPOA, you know, certainly some of the candidates you know criticized Trump, but but no one really gave a wholehearted defense of the JCPOA. Um, no one really said like this is a deal we should be in. And so what happens next? I I don't know, but I don't I don't see negotiations coming out of this or some grand new deal.
0: Yeah, we'll come back to that, because there was the moment in the first round of the debate where we're asked, would you um, go back to the deal? And everybody said yes, except Cory Booker, who said, no, I wouldn't go back to the deal, uh, but I'd like to go back to the deal. Um, yes. You know, which was kind of, That seemed perfectly clear to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. It was really – it was a little – but, you know, fortunately, President Tulsi Gabbard will keep us out of a conflict here. Um, David, what do you see happening next?
1: Well, um, I agree. I, it's hard to imagine a complex negotiation. And since I spent two years of my life covering the last one, uh, running around the world as John Kerry was you know, meeting with foreign ministers, the Reef and various places, uh, putting this thing together, it's very difficult for me to imagine getting back to something of the detailed complexity of the deal. And for all of the president's critiques of it, and I share some of them, I don't think it lasted long enough. Um, I'm not sure how he's improved the situation by creating a crisis that instead of having us face with uh, an Iran building beyond those limits in 2030, we have them building beyond those limits in uh, 2018, 2019, I'm sorry, in 2019 uh, and 2020. Um, So the natural thing to do here would have been to build on the agreement with a separate accord that dealt with um, the missile issues, with support of terrorism around the world. I can't imagine anybody would have opposed that, would have kept the allies together. And now he's in the position of having to deliver something better than President Obama had. And if he can't do that, the pressure to take some kind of military action or to continue a set of sanctions that will result in a big backlash from the Iranians, of which we've seen the beginnings of this, I think will be pretty big. You know, there's an assumption in this administration that if you make the economic pain great enough, the other country will fold. And sometimes that happens. But it didn't happen in 1941 when we cut off Japan's ability to import oil. It didn't happen in the 19, early 1960s when President Kennedy uh, imposed the first embargo on Cuba. Uh, So it's not a slam dunk that the Iranians are going to come to their senses here and negotiate a better deal because they're hurting a lot. They may well go the other way. Yeah,
0: in fact, unilateral sanctions almost never work. Um, But uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that we picked up from this round this debate the other night, um, uh, Ryan, was uh, kind of general desire about the Democrats to sort of say, let's just go back to the JCPOA, um, which, by the way, parenthetically, I'm going to editorialize here a bit. If the president believes the only objective is getting the Iranians n- not to build nuclear weapons, which actually I think was point three in the JCPOA, they said they weren't going to do that. Um, he's actually put himself in, the, in, a, in a worse position here. Uh, because he said, as, as soon as they agree to that, we're going to reward them and help them do all of these things. Uh, and frankly, the JCPOA was kind of not so fast on that front. We're going to go and see over time, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, he, he's put himself in a in a difficult position. But say President Gabbard or somebody else is elected in, in, in 2021, uh, and they just say, well, never mind Iran. We are. <laughs> If it, can they do that? Can they just go back in and say, uh, you know, okay, fine, no, we didn't mean a thing?
4: We didn't mean a thing in terms of what happened. pulling oh, the... out. We're back. Right. You... Um, <laughs> I wonder to what degree even the Iranians are trying to draw out the timeline so that it's closer to that date, and therefore they haven't wound it all the way back so it's easier to kind of bring it back into place. Um, I do think that that next president might have greater leverage to then try to get a better deal, though it's hard to m- see how that happens given the efforts that were made in the Obama administration, but a better deal than adding the pieces that uh, David mentions. I, I think the the biggest hurdle will obviously be if there is uh, an engagement in hostilities between now and then of any nature and the kind of breakdown in trust that that will engender. And then also the concern on the Iranian part, which is that... Um, Trump is not an anomaly, uh, and that you have to prepare for the next uh, wave of that kind of populism um, and a different president uh, after uh, you know President Gabbard is thrown out after the first term, and then what? Um, And if this is how the United States becomes such an unreliable factor in the equation, uh, they have to maybe choose a different path. Right, and that's, of course, something that a lot of people are worried about
0: diplomatically, that the United States is moving into a period in which the old notion that once we signed a deal, we were in it, regardless of party, is no longer applicable and that we vacillate back and forth from the views of one party to another and send a message to our allies that we can't be trusted and to our adversaries that we can't be trusted. It gets into a difficult place. I want to now move on, um, given the limited amount of time we've got, to some of the political issues here. I want to break this into two... Chunks. I want to deal a little bit with uh, the debates and, and some of the things coming out of that. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the underlying factors, um, uh, some of which are brilliantly elucidated in a uh, uh, a piece that Ed Luce has written for the Financial Times magazine on um, uh, West Virginia, where he spent a bunch of time. We'll get to that in the next phase of it. But Ed, before we kick into these politics, as promised, I do want to talk to you about the politics of one of our allies, because it does seem like the United Kingdom is moving closer and closer to um, a choice when it comes to prime minister. And uh, frankly, you know, Boris Johnson, should he be the choice, and he's kind of the favorite at the moment, but Boris Johnson... Uh, would not necessarily be a stabilizing influence on these kind of situations, as as past prime ministers might have been. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what, what would you know, I mean, what would a Boris Johnson foreign policy look like? I I, I read one interview with a former boss of his uh, in the foreign ministry who said that he was completely incompetent to the job back then. So
3: uh, he was indeed, and um, you saying he wouldn't necessarily be a a stabilizing force as prime minister was a, was a masterly understatement uh, i mean i think one of the one of the notable things of british foreign policy if you can call it that in the last 3 years since Brexit happened is that it hasn't actually brexitized Notwithstanding that Boris was Foreign Secretary for one or two of those years, Theresa May has kept a fairly sort of stable trajectory in British foreign policy. And they've stuck since Trump was elected, for the most part, with their European partners on things like the Paris Agreement, um, on um, uh, staying in the JCPOA, which we were just, just discussing, on opposing the shift of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, et cetera. Britain's been fairly predictable um, since then. Um, Boris is a very, very different kettle of fish. Um, uh, uh, he um, is close to Steve Bannon, as it's recently been revealed. Steve Bannon actually helped him compose his resignation letter um, uh, to Theresa May when he quit the foreign Secretary job a year ago, and the column he then wrote for the Daily Telegraph describing... Um, Muslim women in burqas as letter boxes. I think Boris is a mischief maker. He's been boosted by Trump a great deal. Trump has breached all protocol by, by, by promoting Boris as a great prime minister, um, whilst he was um, the guest of Theresa May in Britain. Twice he did that. So I think Boris will prove to be more of a Bolsonaro kind of figure on foreign policy um and and be quite trumpian and you know that that will fully brexify um the, britain's stance in the world um it, it's it's not yet happened brexit boris will deliver it come what may as he said do or die and uh, i would just put the emphasis on the or die bit of that um a, a bit of that uh, slogan um because that's the basis on which he will become conservative party leader and prime minister he will have to deliver Um, Hard Brexit.
0: By the way, I read a number of articles um, that blamed all of this on their elite British education. Um, And you know, you you went to school with all these guys. How did you like? Were you vaccinated? What happened? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well, a lot of focus has been on Oxford University, which is where Boris went, um, and David Cameron went, and indeed where I was at roughly the same time as them. I think Oxford's getting a slightly unfair rap here. The more interesting interesting, um, uh, 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 alma mater they have in common is Eton College. Cameron went there, Boris went there, and any number of um, rogues and crooks of recent British politics went to Eton, and Eton is the sort of cradle of um, ruling class entitlement. Um, And I I think, you know, I know plenty of people from Oxford who are very sane, very balanced, most of whom are appalled by what's happening. Um, So I would um, rather self-servingly divert your attention to Eton.
1: Ed, can I ask a question? As David, I, I realize that we would never, at Deep State Radio, to something as low as um, mere gossip. But we learned or we've been told by many people that it was at Oxford that Boris Johnson and Cameron learned to hate each other. Is that true? Um, I think uh, that's
3: highly likely. Um, Cameron is a little bit younger than Boris. um, So it might well have been at Eton that they learned to hate each other. As you know, Eton has this fagging system. And that—that's a, a sort of pre-medieval system whereby younger boys are um, turned into servants of older boys. And I can imagine Boris exploiting um, the, this ancient tradition with great relish. Um, so again, I would—I would divert your attention to
1: Eton. <laughs> where? Where, and, and where, did, is, and where did this deal, is now where? Why, This explains why—why why Britain is now committing national suicide.
3: Yeah, Britain is supremely fucked up. I mean, it is quite spectacular. I mean, uh, I see and often sort of exploit the humorous side of what's going on. But ultimately, this is an extraordinary tragedy. We have a guy who got fired from the Times for making up quotes, um, who basically did journalism as fiction um, back in the early 90s when he was Brussels correspondent for the Daily Telegraph in which he served up these sort of... Absurd invented caricatures of the worst sort of aspects of European bureaucracy, and that in retrospect was his launch pad for the prime ministership he, he's been he's been trading on that ever since um, and it was largely fictionalized. The guy has no affinity to truth um, he has no moral compass um, and he is fundamentally an incompetent individual. That what drives him, um, because he has no real beliefs. What drives him is whatever serves his ability to become prime minister. It's an open question as to what he does when he actually is prime minister. Because presumably, you know Boris, not being unintelligent, will want to ensure he stays prime minister. And I guess that's the only glimmer of hope that we have from this situation is his own survival instinct might align accidentally with Britain's national interest on one or two issues.
0: Well, you know, the old saying was that the wars of Europe were won and lost on the playing fields of Eton, and it looks like the uh, the fate of Europe may once again have been decided there. Brexit, I guess. Um, uh, it's a kind of <laughs> yeah. frightening prospect, not quite as frightening as elevating journalists to government leadership roles, uh, <laughs> as, as, the, as the horrifying phrase Prime Minister Sanger would bring to anyone's mind. Um, <laughs> um.
1: That would be a key disaster, <laughs> yes. Um,
3: all right, So I have so- to say, the New- a New York Times presidency is far better than a Daily Telegraph prime ministership.
0: Yeah, Well, I have to say, uh, it, it, it would not really be the first New York Times presidency either. But in any event, Sharon, uh, working for a uh, respectable news organization, um, you were there, you were watching the debates last night. There were a couple of questions on foreign policy. Did you glean anything um, that, uh, that you know, Democrats would somehow be different from Republicans on foreign policy?
2: Well, definitely different than Trump. I mean, I think what was um, somewhat surprising is that, you know, as many people have pointed out, you know, foreign policy has, has not been a big part of this time period up until, you know, things escalating with Iran. And now, you know, that they were even thinking, or that may be some of the confusion over some of the answers on JCPOAs. I, I just don't think that that's been an issue that, especially some of the, I don't know what to call it, the, the second tier. Uh, campaigns have had to think of the very fact that they're talking now a little bit about foreign policy is in itself significant. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely would it be different than a Trump administration? Yes, but I think as you raised earlier, that the question you raised. So, okay, what happens on day one with a you know potential Democratic president? Can they just go back into the agreement? Is that possible? Would Iran agree? Would allies agree? I mean, the truth is probably they can't. You can't just transport yourself in time. So then they enter into some policy and then you get yourself, which of these candidates actually have the ability to go forward with some sort of negotiations with Iran? I think what to really look out for is if they ask that question again tonight, um, what is Biden's answer? What, what are some of these other candidates' answers on that? That will be interesting to look out for.
0: Yeah, I'm sure, I suspect his answer will be everything will be fine. We're just going <laughs> to... We're gonna go back, but you know, you raise a good point because it's not just the JCPOA; it's the Paris Accord, it's TPP. You know, there are a whole bunch of agreements uh, that uh, they stepped out of. Uh, United Nations agencies that they've been part of, and you know, people may want to hit the reset. Uh, of course, David, one of the hard-hitting questions that uh, one of the moderators could have asked, but didn't, is: um, Would you make your son-in-law in charge of all U.S. foreign policy? And Who's your son-in-law? Um, <laughs> um, but I was just wondering, did you watch this last night? and Did you glean anything? I did. So, what did you what did you glean?
1: One of the things that uh, struck me uh, was when the candidates were asked, "What do you see as the biggest national security threat?" And uh, some answered um, nuclear uh, proliferation. A number answered climate change, which were uh, you know all good answers. Uh, it was interesting that none of them sort of adopted the ranking that the intelligence community has put together, one or two said on. Um, but none adopted the ranking the intelligence community put together in the Worldwide Threat Assessment. There's nothing uh, written in stone about that, but for the past five or six years, uh, the Worldwide Threat Assessment has put cyber as number one, nuclear as number two, terrorism uh, high up there. None of them mentioned terrorism, al-Qaeda, that kind of uh, issue, whereas 10 years ago all of them would have had to, felt obligated to make that the number one uh, issue. Uh, and I kept wondering as I was listening to this, were these the answers of what they really thought? Or were these answers that they thought would play to some part of the base or both? Um, And uh, it was pretty fascinating. None of them, of course, gave the answer that President Trump would, which is immigration, which ranks so low on uh, the the Worldwide Threat Assessment that the first references to the southern border you can't find until page 18.
0: There was a lot of talk, though, Ryan, about uh, immigration law. Julian Castro went really deep and and talked about sections of the law and how they should be interpreted. And, 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 you know, I I suppose it poses one question, which is along the lines of what we've been talking about with JCPOA and TPP and Paris Accord, is there a quick legal fix Mm. to go and hit the reset button on immigration policies and step away from Trump's actions at the border?
4: Um, So I think there are some very quick fixes, day one type fixes, in the sense that what we have, I think, is this, you know, draconian policy of separation and punishment, even to the point that I wonder, uh, does Stephen Miller love the headlines? Does he just love these images and headlines of uh, tortured children because, in fact, it's a deterrence? And that's the whole point. And, and, and Kelly said it was a form of a deterrence for family separation. So I think that's a day one of a reversal. On that. And also, I suppose there's a day one, um, kind
0: of a reversal, but it'll take another you long. good one would be hanging Stephen Miller upside <laughs> down from his heels or something
4: like that. Just as it deterrent. At the border. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go, um, go, go on. Is um, uh, what some of the candidates talked about, which is more of a long term strategy of investment in the region to try to get at some of the root causes of what pushes people to uh, flee their homelands. And that's a long-term solution in a certain sense, but there's something of a reversal that could start to take place on day one. Okay.
0: Um, uh, So I want to go and I want to spend the last eight, nine minutes here in in a discussion, a little bit of the underpinnings, uh, partially because there are a lot of assumptions that we are looking at regarding how American politics is likely to move us forward, assumptions that certain states are red states and certain states are blue states and certain people are certain... Uh, kinds of people. And, uh, you know, Ed, you did this brilliant, it's part of uh, now the second part, I guess, of your series of sort of going out and looking at the sort of the essence of what makes some of these red states tick. Uh, And you went off to Virginia and you wrote a piece beautifully um, about the nature of the people of West Virginia, the grievances of West Virginia, and how they were not necessarily you know, red in the sense of, um, uh, you know, the, the the way the map is drawn politically in the United States. And in fact, some of them had some roots in red in the way that we used to talk about it, in the sense of, uh, you know, collective action and and so forth. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could, in a nutshell, sort of, in, you know, capture, you know, where you arrived at, you know, how uh, are we really misunderstanding the nature of grievances of lower middle class and poor Americans in places like this?
3: I, I mean, I think uh, arguably we are. Um, uh, you know, there's been um, quite a polarized debate uh, in, in democratic circles, well, in non-Trumpian circles, really, since 2016, about whether the vote for him was entirely uh, to do with deplorability, with racism, homophobia, et cetera, misogyny, um, or whether there was a strong element of economic anxiety in that. And I think West Virginia is a really good test case because it came second only to Wyoming in the the breadth of margin of Trump's victory. There, he won sixty-eight percent of the vote in twenty sixteen. Uh, and what, what I found was something a bit more complicated and more interesting. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders, one, um, would have defeated Trump, according to exit polls. Uh, he, of course, massively trounced Hillary there in the, in the primaries. And so I spent some time with, well, quite a few different people, but in particular for this point with Stephen Smith, who's a, a youngish um, Democratic um, candidate for the gubernatorial elections in West Virginia who describes racism in West Virginia as a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And I think he's got a very, good, very very good point. There is a very strong, pretty much across the state, anti-corporate sentiment. You know, this is a state that's basically all about extraction industries, originally timber in the 19th century, then the railroads came, and coal, um, which to some degree still, still persists, and fracking now. And of course, agribusiness, massive ag- agribusiness. None of the big employers are based in West Virginia, and the squeeze on West Virginians economically has been going on for quite a long time. And 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 so w- what I found was as much readiness to embrace a more sort of radical, uh, you know, uh, m- message about rigged capitalism, um, and from this candidate in particular, Stephen Smith who's running against what he calls the good old boy party. And he says the good old boy party is both Democrats and Republicans. And the perfect personification of that is Joe Manchin, nominally the Democratic um, senator from from West Virginia, but the guy who put the current governor, Jim Justice, um, in the state capital. Jim Justice is a big coal operator. He ran as a Democrat um, and then immediately on winning switched to Republican. Um, and. Has been cutting taxes for um, the big extraction in- industries, but also cutting spending on infrastructure, schools, etc. In Virginia, West Virginia had a big teachers' strike last year, which I think gives a flavour of some of the, the sort of radical sentiment that is out there. So, so to to put it cut a long story short, to put it in a nutshell, writing off West Virginia as deplorable is, I think, a, a tragic mistake, um, and and. A political mistake?
0: Well, and it's an interesting question. By the way, I would note as a footnote to all of this uh, that we've just recently passed the point where we generate more U.S. energy from green energy than from coal, Mm. um, which is a a bit of a watershed and and a game changer uh, in a lot of these uh, places, potentially. Um, But, Sharon, you know, of course, the, the punchline of Ed's conclusion there is that there are a number of Democratic candidates running on the issue of rigged capitalism, um, and it's not just Bernie Sanders. The one with the most momentum, it seems at the moment, is Elizabeth Warren, who has articulated this issue well, and 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 even some of the other leading candidates, um, who may not be quite as um, uh, far along in some of these views, uh, touch upon it. In fact, almost everybody touched upon inequity in our tax system, and and. Uh, um, you know, political corruption and other kinds of things that are part of this rigged capitalism. Um, And so perhaps what, uh, you know, Ed is hinting at here is that, you know, the labels we traditionally use and the way that we traditionally draw the map for political campaigns, such as the one that we're just entering into, may may be misleading. Sharon, is that something you concur with and...
2: Yes, I think Ed makes a great point in looking at West Virginia, and the same goes for other states. It's just hard. I mean, if you look at the numbers, um, I mean, things we're still very far out. You know, we'll we'll go into this debate tonight. I just don't see a winning scenario here. I, I don't see Biden getting the support of the parts of the Democratic Party that are outraged by student loans, by uh, corporate greed. But at the same time, you know, unless Warren can really pull ahead, I, I, I don't know that the candidates who you know, Sanders and Warren, it's hard to imagine them right now Getting the nomination, but at the same time, it's hard to see Biden winning without really attacking those points that are so critical right now. I I don't. I don't have a good answer on that. I'm afraid.
0: Well, actually, you do, uh, because Warren and Sanders have roughly the same support aggregated that Biden does, Uh, and there's a lot of recent analysis that suggests that something has happened in the Democratic Party since Biden was last in office, not necessarily what, you know, I, I don't like the terms shift to the left, but um, a shift on a number of these issues that have traditionally been identified as um, progressive um, issues. David, of course, all of this, you know, co- you know is, comes in the wake of a, a decision on the day that we are taping this from the Supreme Court of the United States uh, that uh, said that uh, the federal court shouldn't, Mess around with the issue of politically motivated gerrymandering, and that it's you know up to the states if they want to engage in that, um, which is a bit worrisome. Um, uh, but but you know if we're going to go and don uh, Corey Shockey's you know tiara of optimism here, you've got the conclusions of Ed, which is that people shift and issues shift, and so. May, gerrymandering may not be as effective as it was. And then, of course, you've got on top of that the fact that even in spite of the fact that the Republicans draw about twice as many districts as the Democrats draw because of the way the laws go, um, the Democrats won the House last time around. They could win the House again. Uh, and so as effective as gerrymandering may be, it it may not be that
1: effective. I suspect we're going to look back at this as a hugely consequential decision because and and you see it in the dis, in the dissent which um, uh, uh, was a quite passionate one that basically made the argument that these gerrymandering activities are fundamentally designed by people in power to stay in power and are fundamentally undemocratic and that is not where uh, the majority uh, led by the chief justice uh, ended up. And so um, my guess is that, at least in the short term, this is going to be a huge boon for the Republicans. I think you'll probably see uh, those who are opposing the gerrymandering now try to turn to the state courts, but it's not clear how that will work. But this pretty well shuts down most of the federal challenges to gerrymandering uh, cases. Uh, you may see some shift to people saying, "No, this wasn't politically motivated. This gerrymandering was racially motivated," and the court was silent on that because it was part of of this particular case. Um, but in the end, the combination of this and uh, the ability of um, corporations to give to PACs uh, on a pretty unlimited basis—a uh, Supreme Court decision that goes back. Oh, 18 or 20 years now, I think is going to be seen as a huge, huge um, uh, move that will probably perpetuate whatever power is, uh, is in Congress. I agree with you. When they are big shifts, like you saw in the last congressional uh, election, then no amount of gerrymandering really matters.
0: Well, so much for my attempt to be optimistic there, Ryan. <laughs> um uh you know I, I I turned to the wrong guy I guess but uh David's right there's citizens united there's now this decision David made reference to uh, associate justice Elena Kagan's dissent which is really good reading I encourage people even who don't read these things to read it because she really calls out the the chief justice on that and of course not you know this this decision doesn't just refer to this particular case But it gives you a sense of where this court is, which is a bit of a problem. And then there's this other problem, the Constitution of the United States, which gives disproportionate power to states on the basis of geography rather than population. So that by the year 2030, 30% of the people of the United States are going to be electing 70 Senate seats uh, or 68 Senate seats. And on top of that, of course, they get disproportionate representation in the Electoral College. As, as, a, as a consequence of having those extra seats. Uh, and so if you're in a red state and it's a gerrymandered state um, uh, and it's not a very populous state, as many red states are not, you're going to have more power per person than the people in the blue states. And so we're really kind of screwed, right, Ryan? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that's that's the conclusion? You went to Harvard Law School to
4: learn how to say yes in response to that? Um, I mean, I only, uh, you know, a countervailing factor is what we've just described, what David uh, didn't allude to, but pointed to, which is bigger cultural, ideological shifts in the country and the demographics of the country. And it might very well be like the, the movement against crony capitalism um, that is both in the Ed Luce piece And um, in last night's debate, um, that there really might be such a groundswell of a shift, given what's happened in the country in terms of inequality, that national leadership, at least in terms of the White House, will be different.
0: Well, you know, you you make a really, really good point. It's going to be very difficult over the course of the next 20 years or so. Um, But by the year 2043, the majority population in the United States is going to be people we once thought of as minorities. Uh, and that kind of a demographic shift is likely to affect everywhere. Uh, and in fact, to the extent to which it does, um, it could lock in Democratic majorities for a long, long time to come uh, if they play by the rules that they were created by the Republicans. Right. Uh, in fact, it seems to me that in, in, in some large respect, the Republican initiative here. Has been sort of erected as a kind of a bulwark against these inevitable demographic changes.
4: Agreed. And in fact, you know, like just one small example of it is uh, doing away with um, the supermajority requirements in the Senate. That, that, in some sense, that would actually help the Republicans in the future when the demographics have shifted and they need to think about that kind of long term.
0: Right. And indeed, a number of people have, have talked about that as a way of, of fighting back in this case. Well, look, we've covered a lot of ground here. We've gone from Iran, we've gone to the U.K., we've gone to the debates, we've gone to the underlying issues here. Uh, and that's in part because we've had such a terrific panel. I encourage everybody to go read Ed's article. What's, what's your article called, Ed? Uh,
3: it's called The Return of the Redneck Rebellion.
0: Return of the Redneck. The FT has sent its redneck correspondent, Ed Luz, <laughs> out, 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 out into West Virginia uh, with his anti-Etonian views, and uh, uh, was able to tap into truth there. Encourage you to go look that. That's in the FT magazine. Uh, of course, I encourage you also to go and look at the work of everybody else who's here. Sharon Weinberger, who's one of the best editors that I know, has turned. Uh, Yahoo News into a real scoop machine and and they're doing a lot of great work and so go read the stuff that's put out by your team there. Uh, Of course David Sanger is the leading expert on uh, cyber and a host of other national security issues that there are Um, uh, and uh, uh, you know all of you who follow Deep State Radio have been following David from the beginning so should continue to do that (laughs) and the work that's being done by Ryan and his colleagues at Just Security uh, it's fantastic. You should go to justsecurity.com and you should read up on it. There's new things coming every day. Um, and uh, and if you follow these guys, um, you'll uh, be just as smart as they are. And then you can be on this podcast in no time at all. Uh, that's it for this episode of Deep State Radio Live here from the studio at the Comedy Cellar. We hope you will join us again next week in our regular times on Monday and on Wednesday. And then again here on Thursday of next week, we've got some great stuff coming. And we also have the return of National Security Magazine with some great one-on-ones uh, for the rest of the summer with real political leaders across the country. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, you've got Unredacted, the podcast, and you've got Washington for Beautiful People, and you've got everything else that's on the website. So go to the DSRnetwork.com, become a member. And you get stuff like this all the time, which is a lot of fun for me, and I presume and hope it's uh, fun and illuminating for you. So thank you, Ed, Sharon, David, and Ryan. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright.